Uh, first, I want to congratulate you uh, for inaugurating, uh, uh, it must be under your watch, um, six or seven years ago, this series of lectures on such a socially and politically significant topic, a series surely unique in the Western world, um, but also uh, to commiserate with you on uh, choosing me to give it. <laughs> I say commiserate not so much out of false modesty, though I can do that too. Um, but rather because I know in advance what you don't know, which is how gloomy I can be about wide participation. Not gloomy at all about it as an ideal, but only about how it plays out in practice despite the best intentions. That's what you get for inviting an historian to speak. Hindsight is very keen and not very flattering. I recommend that next year you try for a politician or a journalist, or best of all, a vice chancellor, and I say this aware that there are at least two ex-vice chancellors in the room, um, but all of these uh, professions um, have a much better track record than historians at looking brightly to the future. In the meantime, I'll do my best as an historian. What I propose to do is to look uh, back over the last 50 years, uh, the period during which access to higher education has become a pressing social and political issue, and try to say what widening participation meant to successive generations, as well as something about how they went about getting it and how they fared. We will see that the meanings of widening participation have changed quite radically sometimes, and sometimes over very short time horizons. As a result, so did the means applied to achieve it. And yet, how they fared? Not very well at any time. I did mention gloom, didn't I? I shall try to end on an upbeat as if I were a prospective VC. Until the late 50s, uh, universities didn't attend all that much to widening participation. There was a general assumption across society that only about 5 to 10% of the population at most would ever have adequate intelligence to benefit from higher education. This was a proportion fixed by genetics and by a relatively rigid idea of what higher education was, so not susceptible to political stimulus or manipulation. Depending on how high you set the bar, this qualification was variously defined as merit, talent, or even genius. But there was little doubt that this quality was in relatively short supply, and the only doubt arose uh, over how to find it. If anything, conviction about the fixity of talent was solidifying in the 1950s. The spread of intelligence testing, particularly to select 11-year-olds for grammar school, just the first of many winnowings for entry to higher education, testified to belief in a scientific definition of intelligence and to an impartial scientific means of detecting it. When people talked about equality of opportunity in the 1950s, this was more or less what they meant, the austere scientism of the intelligence test, rather than personality or patronage or school type, should be the gateway, the sole gateway to higher education, the key to making a meritocracy, to use a word not yet current, in place of an aristocracy. And in this environment, universities had to do little or nothing except wait for the meritocratic elite to knock on their doors. Indeed, it was not held strictly necessary for even the elite 5 to 10% to go to university, as most professions requiring intellectual ability did not then require a university degree. Not law or politics, for example. Stanley Baldwin uh, was the only interwar prime minister to go to university. In the words of John Carswell, the great civil servant and historian of higher education, the universities did not occupy a large place in the consciousness of the nation as a whole, for whom they came to the surface only in sporting events such as the boat race, and then it was only Oxford and Cambridge. Why did this change um, by the end of the 50s? 
It was not at first because universities, or even politicians, or technocrats, or experts, saw a need for widened participation, but simply because more people tried to participate off their own bat. In other words, demand-side pressures were at first weightier than supply-side decisions. The principal driver was widening participation in secondary education. First, through the provision of universal secondary education for the first time after the Butler Act of 1944, before then, fewer than a fifth of children even started secondary school, and then through growing demand for a grammar school education, widely seen as the best education, regardless of whether the parents had longer-term goals of further and higher education for their children. Simply put, once secondary education became a universal service like health, most parents wanted the best secondary education, just as they wanted the best health care, and this meant grammar schools. In this context, equal opportunity no longer meant the opportunity to take an intelligence test. It meant the opportunity to go to grammar school, the best secondary education, regardless of measured ability. This demand-side pressure for widening participation has not often been given its due weight, either by contemporaries or by subsequent commentators, who prefer to credit various experts, psychologists, sociologists, educationists, or at best, pressure from the organized left. But it was palpable at the grassroots in the late 50s and early 60s, in what voters said to pollsters and canvassers on the doorsteps, in the crowds that gathered to attend public discussions of school reorganization, even in a tendency for young families to move to areas where selection was less rigorous, and uh, giving a greater guarantee that their children would go to the best schools, an early version of the school-driven house hunting that we think of as a recent phenomenon, but was very evident in the late 50s. And it was registered first politically at the grassroots, too, in local authority decisions to relax selection that gathered speed in the late 50s. Conservative-controlled Leicestershire, for example, introduced middle schools from 1957 in order to postpone selection to 14. By 1963, over half of all local authorities were planning to phase out selection altogether. And in that year, the conservative education minister, Edward Boyle, expressed the new orthodoxy thus, none of us believe in pre-war terms that children can be sharply differentiated into various types or levels of ability. That's a very artfully cast phrase, as I think you can appreciate pre-war terms. Those were the terms, in fact, um, that were prevalent right up until the point at which he was speaking in 1963. <laughs> Largely in response to this demand side pressure, experts and politicians had to rethink their previous assumption that only an elite of 5 to 10% could aspire to higher education. They had both to develop a policy of widening participation and also to ground it on a new set of assumptions about who could benefit from uh, higher education. Probably the most influential of these new assumptions was the one propagated by economists like John Basie, who argued that education need not simply reflect society, a fixed distribution of talent and ability, but could shape it. Education now became an investment in human capital. It added to the stock of talent, and thus contributed to upskilling the labor market and accelerating economic growth, a policy imperative at this moment of the late 50s and early 60s when Britain was self-consciously seeking to modernize and keep up with rapidly growing rivals on the continent and elsewhere. The language of human capital had broad cross-party appeal, and it seems to have been influential in converting Tories like Boyle to a widening participation agenda. A more radical argument for widening participation came from sociologists, notably of this parish, Nuffield's Chelly Halsey and Jean Flood. They argued on social justice grounds that early academic selection was blocking social mobility. 
If that sounds familiar, um, and in fact rather prescient, um, well, that would be a, a theme of uh, the rest of what I have to say. The intelligence measured by tests, they wrote, was just a measure of social privilege, already entrenched at 11. This is the point at which my statistics start to uh, flow. I'm going to try to keep the, the flow manageable. Um, I gave a lecture about social mobility um, in November, and uh, when I showed it to the sociologists and economists who were advising me on it, and I showed them the PowerPoint, they sort of said, um, you're going to show this to historians? Uh, <laughs> um, and, and conscious that this is a, a, a very diverse audience, um, I'm going to, uh, to, to try to moderate my uh, statistical ardor. But I do think the statistics um, often speak volumes more eloquently than I can speak in a lecture. Get to this in a second. As intelligence testing extended, and indeed grammar school enroll enrollments rose, it was already privileged groups who were benefiting the most. And the proportion of working class boys in grammar school had remained level at around 11 to 12 percent since the early 30s. This is um, work that uh, Halsey and Flood uh, were doing in the mid to late 50s. This tendency for educational expansion to benefit the most privileged groups first is now a well established phenomenon in sociological literature referred to as maximally maintained inequality, or more modestly, effectively maintained inequality. It highlights the fact that widened participation does not necessarily mean equal participation or more equal participation. Indeed, it tends to have the opposite effect. And I'll come back to it. But the Oxford sociologists were among the first to observe it. The growth of free grammar school places had first benefited mostly the privileged classes, and only when their participation had reached saturation levels did less privileged groups begin to make up some ground. And this is a, a statistic showing the percentage of each social class um, attending grammar schools um, uh, from the 1930s to 1960s. Um, and as you'll see, the social classes from one to seven, these are professional managerial classes. These are um, uh, non-manual uh, working classes. You'll see that that um, hierarchy um, is echoed very obediently and regularly by the, 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 the relative proportions. Uh, of those groups going to um, um, grammar school. Um, and, one, and what happens over the course um, of the 40s when grammar schools all become free and uh, uh, open to everyone uh, who passes the, the entrance exam, the 11 plus, um, is that actually the participation rates of the higher groups increase more rapidly than the participation rates of the lower groups. In other words, the gap between here and here widens. Um, according, uh, 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 from where it had been before expansion. And then it, it contracts a little bit um, as um, a saturation level in the region. There's a little bit of catch up, but in fact, the gap remains pretty much what it had always been um, in the early 30s and in the early 60s. Like the centrist economists, the radical sociologists believed that more people should be given the opportunity to acquire intelligence through academic education. But the sociologists went beyond this generalized faith in the value of education to argue that true equal opportunity could never be achieved without more equality of conditions. Entrenched social privilege had to be eroded with redistribution of income and wealth and the improvement of universal welfare state services. Otherwise, an extended educational system would only continue to reproduce unequal opportunity. It was in the context of this argument that the term meritocracy was coined. Uh, popularized by Michael Young in his 1958 tract, The Rise of the Meritocracy, where meritocracy was actually being spoofed as a new aristocracy based on intelligence testing, full of illusions about its openness and egalitarianism, not held up as an ideal. And these arguments caught the ear of a rising labor politician named 
Tony Crossland, who shared the view that equal opportunities for self-advancement superimposed on a segregated educational system would still leave too wide a gap between the new elite and the average citizen, a quote from his book, The Future of Socialism, and who listened carefully to the sociologist when he became education minister in the Wilson government in 1954. Most of this debate took place on the terrain of secondary schooling, which was where the demand pressures were hitting hardest, the front line of educational politics. But by 1961, the conservatives were already anticipating the knock-on effects for higher education, and this led them to appoint the famous Committee of Inquiry into Higher Education, chaired by the economist uh, Lionel Robbins. <coughs> Even before selection had started to relax, higher education was feeling the strain from pressures for widening participation. There were two independent factors which contemporaries called the bulge and the trend. The bulge was demographic, the effect of the baby boom, which had itself begun to put pressure on secondary selection in 1957 when the first cohort of baby boomers reached 11 years of age, and which would inevitably require expansion of higher education by 1965. And um, despite what you may have read in a recent Green paper, you can't just build a new university overnight. <laughs> That's the bulge. The trend was democratic, the growing aspiration to participation that we have just seen putting pressure on secondary schooling. The trend had begun earlier than the bulge, as larger numbers of secondary school children were being produced from the late 40s. By the late 50s, it was clear that there was an inadequate supply of places in higher education already to accommodate these new levels of demand. Whereas 79% of all qualified entrants, and the qualification for entry to uh, higher education was two A-levels, um, where 79% of all qualified entrants had found places in 1956, only 65% found places in 1961. In other words, people were being turned away who were applying and qualifying. To meet the immediate needs of the trend and the expected needs of the bulge, university expansion had already begun, therefore, well before Robbins, and 15 new universities were authorized between 1945 and 1963 when Robbins reported. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's still a common mistake to talk about the Robbins uh, era, or even worse, the Robbins-initiated expansion, but the expansion, of course, was already happening in the 50s. Robbins' job was to project forward both the bulge and the trend. Under the influence of economists and sociologists, his committee embraced the trend enthusiastically. They argued that widening participation was necessary, both to meet national needs for skilled manpower, that's the human capital argument, and also to meet democratic aspirations for greater equality. That's the argument that was coming from the left and sociologists. With almost utopian zeal, they extrapolated the bulge and the trend forward to predict that, whereas in their own time, barely 3% of the working age population had experienced higher education, by 2025, the proportion would reach 16%. That was seen as wildly utopian, and indeed, of course, it is very hard to extrapolate forward um, 60 years. But that was the temper of the time, and it's uh, something that uh, um, I'm, I think we probably should be sorry that we have lost. Uh, I, I, I worked hard on enhancing the, uh, uh, the, the visual quality of this, um, of this slide. Uh, it's, uh, in, the, in the early 60s, there were, of course, no computers um, to produce graphs in bright colors and sharp definition. Someone's actually sitting in Robin's office. It, it could have been uh, Richard Laird or um, uh, Klaus Moser. I actually had to draw it by hand, and even in the, and in the printed uh, edition of the Robin's report, it comes out look, looking like a, a sort of... Um, a primary school um, uh, child's product rather than a, a technocrat's. Um, but 
um, I think you can see, um, and this is uh, projections for students in higher education uh, up to, um, uh, I think it's 19, this one that goes up to 1980. See, I can't even read it. Um, uh, and as you can see, all the graphs are going way up. Now, they, of course, very carefully um, um, uh, narrowed the, the, the x-axis of the graph um, and put it as um, a portrait rather than a landscape. And so it makes the lines look even steeper than they need to. Um, and I think that is in itself an expression, not just of the poverty of the technical facilities of the command of the graph drawers, but I think that's also an expression of their, um, of their optimism and their hope. Um, so from 3% experiencing higher education to 16%, to use a more familiar measure, they expected the rate at which 18 to 21-year-olds entered higher education, that is the, the rising cohort, the age participation rate, or APR, to rise from about 8% to 19% by 1985. So more than doubling in 20 years. Widening participation, widening participation of some kind was now clearly on the agenda and predicted to remain so for the next 40 to 60 years. Again, I think it's the, the, the long-term um, scale and time horizons rather than the year-on-year -year growth that's impressive. Though Robbins reported in 1963, it was the Labour government elected in 64 and Tony Crossland as Education Secretary who were responsible for implementing his recommendations. Egged on by Halsey and Flood, Crossland took seriously not only widening participation in general, but the particular kind of widening participation that the radical sociologists had called for a policy that did not simply accept effectively maintained inequality, but that purposely, purposefully reached down to low participation groups to help them catch up. Working class families would remain the principal source of new demand in the coming years, and said Jean Flood to, in her testimony to Robbins, systematic steps should be taken to cultivate this source of demand. While Robbins accepted Flood's assumptions about the huge pool of ability waiting to be tapped in these low participation groups, he did not recommend any systematic steps to cultivate them. He only made one specific recommendation about widening participation, and this was aimed solely and specifically at the men's colleges of Oxford and Cambridge, where the share of admissions from maintained schools had actually been dropping recently down to 30%, and whom he urged to make better efforts to reach out to maintained schools. Other universities were already managing to recruit 70% of their intake from maintained schools. So on the whole, Robbins, since he was not aware of or did not believe in effectively maintained inequality, seemed to think that widening participation would just naturally benefit disadvantaged groups as the total pool of applicants and entrants expanded. Crossland thought otherwise. His major reform that departed from Robbins' recommendations was to include in expansion plans a more diverse menu of higher education institutions going beyond the traditional university to include colleges of advanced technology and a new set of institutions launched in 1965, the Polytechnics, which brought together art colleges, technical colleges, and other kinds of existing HE colleges to form large inner city institutions, close to working class populations, better integrated with the world of work, and more informal and inviting in their mode of address. Robbins had uh, wanted to keep a, a system much more homogeneous, both in what it offered and um, in how it was organized. Um, Crossland didn't think that the kind of growth that Robbins was looking for, and particularly the kind of growth which um, uh, narrowed the uh, inequality gap, um, could occur if uh, traditional universities were simply replicated. 
And while Crossland had, did have technological hopes for these so-called public sector institutions, so-called because they were controlled by local authorities, he also insistently had socialist hopes for them that they would reach the parts that the snobby traditional universities, uh, like this one, his alma mater, wouldn't reach. Crossland was right to worry that the universities on their own would not ensure that expansion meant widening participation. The age participation rate rose rapidly in the 1960s, more rapidly than Robbins had predicted, to 12% by uh, 1968. So here is the post-Robbins increase, and it, there it is at about 12% by 1968. The universities were given considerable credit for making this possible by expanding the number of places they offered, deemed a magnificent response um, by the LSE economist Richard Laird, who had served on Robbins' staff, and who thought they were, as a result, losing their reputation for snobby exclusivity. But of course, thanks to effectively maintained inequality, their new intake was not substantially different from their old, sociologically speaking. Um, and these are statistics that were presented uh, by um, the Deering Report in 1997. Um, and they show, as you can see, that um, during the post-Robbins expansion, um, the uh, gap actually grew slightly between the participation rates of um, non-manual and um, manual um, background students. <clears throat> All classes were participating more, so there's growth at that level and at that level. Um, and this is, of course, only a very crude uh, uh, differentiation. One could break it down by the, that eight-class um, typology that I showed with grammar schools. All classes were participating more, but the absolute growth in participation rates amongst non-manual groups and um, uh, the professional managerial classes in particular outpaced the participation of students from uh, manual backgrounds. Most universities continue to rely on the same independent, direct grant, and at a pinch, ordinary grammar schools that they'd always relied upon, except that they were now able to offer places to more qualified applicants from those schools as they soft up the demand that they had failed to meet in the preceding decade. That is, they're often going back to the same schools who they had been um, going to in the late 50s and early 60s, but um, not all of those candidates they could uh, previously um, find room for. Even Laird, who had praised them for their magnificent response, felt that they were essentially passive in regard to the social and economic priorities laid out by Robbins and Crossland. As Sir John Kingman, who was in the late 60s a young admissions tutor at Sussex in its pomp, uh, put it to me recently, our brief from the university was to choose the best applicants. There was no concern for any sort of social balance, and any suggestion that preference might be given to students from poorer backgrounds would have been met with horror. In no part of the higher education system was the effect of growth on widening participation anything but modest. In the 1970s, 70% of university students came from non-manual backgrounds, but so did 64% of polytechnic students. And this was at a time when most 18-year-olds uh, were born into manual class families. Saturation levels were now being reached amongst the very top professional and managerial families, so the biggest gainers came from the upper middling groups just below them, but no further down. This is how effectively maintain inequality works. One reason why these results were so disappointing by the 1970s was that even expansion, not only widened participation, but expansion had halted by then. And this is the, great, the long um, 
freeze in um, higher education participation from, it actually starts in about 1970, 71, um, and it carries on until about 86. Now why this happened is one of the great mysteries of recent educational history, and I've tried to untangle them out myself in a paper uh, that appeared recently in the Transactions of the Royal Historical Society. The problem is that a lot of things were happening all at the same time. Going to work instead of staying in education became more attractive to 16 to 18 year olds as unskilled wages rose for the last time in the 1970s. Um, as my friend Andy Bell, um, who's now heard me quote this a number of times, uh, put it to me once, this is the story of the years from status quo to Alfieder saying pet. And I quote that often, um, not only because it's clever and apt, and I, uh, I want to tip my hat to Andy, but also because it offers a rare opportunity to test academic audiences on their ability to decode 1970s popular culture. <laughs> and I did notice only a little ripple of laughter. Uh, Andy, I'm afraid that either means that your joke isn't very good, or, in fact, no one here really knows what these things mean. <laughs> we know what it means, we were around that. At the same time, so that's, there's a, a surge of, um, uh, of working class, uh, skilled working class wages and employment in the early 70s. At the same time, graduate unemployment, previously held to be an oxymoron, rose throughout the 1970s and made a personal investment in higher education seem a less good bet, especially to those most sensitive to employment prospects. So expanding participation uh, means you, you have to persuade um, people who are not used to um, uh, the thought of higher education to enter even though you can't any longer promise them a job. Then the social and cultural ferment in higher education after 1968 made universities for a while appear even without these economic disincentives, just less like places for upwardly mobile children of working class families, less about hard work and social mobility, and more about self-expression in ways that seemed unfamiliar, and especially to working class parents of girls, even dangerous. Again, I think those of us who were at university in the 70s know exactly what I mean when I talk about that. The school leaving age rose to 16, and this may actually have encouraged more rather than fewer to leave school at that age. It appeared to be a terminal date that you, you left um, after O-levels. School reorganization, the 1970s were the years when most grammar schools and secondary modern schools were merged into comprehensives, may also have temporarily disrupted the flow of students to higher education. And another factor, though much more marginal a factor than you might have guessed, is that there were some um, um, central government cuts to higher education expenditure, especially, of course, after the financial crisis of 73 to 4. But the, the downward trend had already started years before. So although you read in most of the literature that the reason why you get this flatlining of participation is the cuts, I'm afraid the cuts simply will not cut it as an explanation for 15 years of um, stagnant participation. Whatever the reason, the sudden end to expansion that hit around 1970 and continued sickeningly despite the best efforts of government to kickstart it, and in fact the labor government of 1749 did try to put money back into higher education, um, uh, the continuing stagnation of, of, of uh, participation right into the mid-80s undoubtedly also froze efforts on the part of universities and others to widen um, participation. And this effect was felt most painfully in that part of the system that had most pinned its hopes on widening participation in the true sense of more equal participation, that is, the public sector. A crisis of competence hit the polytechnics. Why were they failing to draw in the low participation groups at whom they were aimed? Should they be redoubling their efforts to offer vocationally oriented courses closer to the world of work? Should they make their courses shorter, more flexible, less rigorous? 
Should they be targeting women, mature students, and part-timers? And it is painful to read these um, agonized uh, self-recriminations that swept through the polytechnic sector in the late 70s and early 80s, particularly painful because we know what happened is that everything changed almost overnight without them having to do any of those things. Especially after a fiscal crisis, the fiscal crisis hit in, in around 74, the polytechnics also tried to tempt government to channel more students to, in their direction and away from universities, that is, not increasing participation, but just uh, redirecting the flow from universities to polytechnics by striking deals to make polytechnic education cheaper. And government was, of course, tempted by this offer, but in fact, neither cheaper nor shorter, no less, nor less academic courses had the slightest effect in tempting students back. The true crisis of confidence was not in the polytechnics, but in the young population, especially in low participation groups. In the late 50s, qualified school leavers, those with two A-levels, didn't go to university <coughs> because there weren't enough places. In the early 1970s, there were plenty of places, but qualified school leavers didn't go to university simply because they didn't want to. This situation bothered the polytechnics, but it did not bother the universities very much, uh, not as much as it ought to have. Stagnation of the age participation rate at the bottom of the hierarchy um, uh, was uh, more hurtful than it was at the top. Furthermore, if the number of grammar schools that could reliably supply top class entrance was shrinking, then perhaps it wouldn't be a bad idea to keep numbers stable. And um, I don't know if some of you are fans of, uh, of the series of popular history, social histories of post-war uh, post written, written by Dominic Sandbrook. Um, I have to say, I'm not particularly a fan of them. Um, but one of the things that I find really striking, and it's not so much a, a criticism of Sandbrook as a, um, an awareness that when people look at the higher education system in the 70s, they're often looking at the top and not looking at the bottom. But Sandbrook, in the, his volume on the 70s, um, calls the 70s the golden age of higher education, which does seem really bizarre, given that it's that, that period there. Um, and it may reflect. I don't know. Uh, it'd be interesting for those of you who were uh, around at, at that time um, uh, and who have reflections on this. It, it may have seemed, in retrospect, a golden age. It may have seemed a golden age at the time. Um, at what, as one contemporary observer put it, university admissions offices, never previously much interested in forecasting anyway, remained nonchalant, complacent. Interest in widening participation in those circles was, I think, still very low at the point in 1979 when the conservatives returned to power. Some rethinking may have been triggered by the conservatives' decision not to seek any longer to stimulate higher education growth, but to constrain it. I mean, as I say, the labor government is trying to kickstart uh, participation again with limited fiscal resources at their command, but the conservatives made a policy decision to stop doing that and, in fact, even to encourage contraction. Keith Joseph, for a time at least, persuaded Thatcher that higher education had overexpanded in the 60s with all sorts of undesirable consequences, too many economically valueless and politically volatile art students, unjustifiable levels of, of public expenditure, politically unreliable dons. Nor was Joseph interested, of course, in widening participation for its own sake. His vision, his vision of equality, enunciated in a book of that name in 1979, co-written with Jonathan Sumption, who's been in the news again recently, uh, not as a defender of equality. Um, <laughs> Joseph's vision of equality was truly radical. He set his face against both Crossland-Dyke equality and meritocracy. A society in which rewards were determined by ascertainable merit, he wrote, would be one in which the worth of individuals was measured by their success in complying with existing values. That's not a good thing in the Joseph worldview. 
Progress is born of the uncoordinated energies of countless individuals. It arises out of confusion, not out of homogeneity and social discipline. And this is a really the radical sort of Hayekian view. In this view, social change would come about by means of luck, hard work, and natural endowments, not by equality of opportunities normally construed. Now, I think having someone um, with views, published views like that, um, enter the education industry might indeed have uh, frightened the horses, um, as some people in this room, including me, may recall. Real terms cuts in university budgets in the 1980s and the prospect of a withdrawal of grants to students and their replacement by loans gave many people in universities cause to regret their complacency in the 1970s. But not everyone, and perhaps not even most. There was considerable resignation about both a culturally enduring rejection of education amongst the mass of the population and the evident loss of faith in governing circles in the human capital arguments for educational investment. The universities were resigned to a long period of, at best, further stagnation. And if that meant abandoning any residual appetite for widening participation, then so be it, as many thought. When offered by Joseph in 1981 the choice between taking fewer students or absorbing lower unit costs for the same number of students, the universities chose fewer students. Quality, that byword from before the period of expansion, remained paramount, at least in the university sector. This became glaringly evident in the mid-1980s when conservative higher education policy underwent a sudden volt-fonce from contraction to pell-mell expansion. It's nearly as hard to understand this resumption of expansion as it is to understand the halt called 15 years earlier. But suddenly the human capital arguments came back into fashion. Keith, Keith Joseph was out on his ear and Kenneth Baker, a more emollient and frankly technocratic kind of conservative, was in charge. It was Baker who put widened participation back onto the agenda. If, as he intended, a dramatic increase in the age participa participation rate was to be engineered in short order, then all the tools that Tony Crossland, an odd doppelganger for Baker, uh, but I think a true one, all the tools that Tony Crossland had created had to be turned to the task and new tools forged. In practice, Baker's most effective tool for sparking widened participation was the invention of a single national exam at 16, which would give all students in any type of school access to A-levels and university entrance, the GCSE. But the effect of GCSE would take some years to trickle through the system. 18-year-olds and older students who had so far declined or not been offered access to higher education had to be bundled into classrooms immediately. To this challenge, the polytechnics responded with alacrity. <coughs> Already in the Joseph era, they had shown their ability to make the best of his cuts in student numbers by luring mature students via access courses, which retrofitted them with A-levels. And this proved an especially successful strategy for recruiting ethnic minority students in London. And by soaking up some of the surplus demand created by universities' decision to go for cash rather than numbers. So the polytechnics were much more eager and much more agile. And Baker had noticed this. He became that oddity, a Tory minister, friendly to the public sector. He saw the polytechnics as cheaper alternatives to the universities willing and able to expand rapidly at lower costs. Fortunately, if you're a fan of universities, the universities woke up to this danger at the 11th hour. Under Baker, they accepted the deal they had turned down under Joseph. Even lower unit costs were accepted, or ever lower unit costs, were accepted in return not for maintaining student numbers, but for greatly increasing them. And thus began the great leap forward. In a speech at Lancaster in January 1989 that ought to be better remembered than it is, 
Baker announced a public target of a 33% age participation rate by 2000. This represented a more than doubling of the current rate and higher than Robbins had uh, forecast in 1963. That's come out of the blue. Let's go back. Um, in fact, that rate was reached ahead of time by the mid-1990s. It was soon followed by a new target, 50%, which we are now very near to reaching. I think that was, yeah, that's right. That was meant to show, um, actually, I'm going to come back to this one. Tell you a little bit, but, but more about that in a second. The initial impact of Baker's uh, expansion was, of course, very much to widen participation, so rapidly and so radically that, in some respects, it even put a check on effectively maintaining inequality. The GCSE undoubtedly narrowed the participation gap in further education. That is, children and especially young women from disadvantaged backgrounds caught up somewhat in their willingness to stay on to 18 a narrowing of the gap that was made easier by the fact that privileged groups staying on to 18 had already reached saturation levels. But privileged groups' participation in higher education had not yet reached saturation levels, far from it, and the surge of the 1990s disproportionately benefited those privileged groups, as Deering again noted. And um, you'll see that um, in the early 90s, there's a sudden leap um, in um, privileged participation which is about 9%, which is, there's a sudden leap, of course, in um, manual class participation, but it's only 5%, so the gap is actually widening. It was not until the late 1990s, in fact, that universities, politicians, and indeed public opinion woke up to this fact, that expansion was not facilitating more equal participation. This is the point at which widening participation, as we now know it, finally comes into view. Why did this new consciousness finally emerge when it did? This is a trickier question than it seems, and here I can only throw up a number of factors. One was a growing awareness of income and wealth inequality in society at large. The income and wealth gaps have been opening since the early 1980s. Um, this is the 90th percentile uh, weekly earnings at constant prices, and it's the gap that's opening between it and the median and um, it on the 10th percentile. Um, in truth, mostly between the top 10% and the rest. Um, uh, and they can, and um, since the early uh, 90s, mostly between the top 1% and the median. Here's uh, a different way of expressing the same thing. This is the ratio between uh, the top 1% and the median, between the top 5% and the median, and the top um, 10% of the median, as you see from um, uh, this time on, the gap is growing between the median and the top 1%, and um, not so much between the top 5 and 10% of the median. The point about this is that growing wealth and inequality, although it becomes an issue in public discourse, is um, sub substantially not impacting on most people in the broad um, center of society. The imp impact is mostly being felt at first in the top 10% and then increasingly only in the top 1%. That might have um, uh, adverse uh, effects on people's sense of belonging and sense of self, but it's not as if um, uh, people can see very visibly a large um, privileged group detaching from the mainstream of society. Concern about this in the 1990s was increasingly voiced in terms of social mobility. And that's another puzzle which 
and then we could have an uh, opportunity to discuss possibly why. John Major was already using this language in the mid-90s, but it became a defining feature of new labor social policy after 1997, starting with the Deering Report of that year. Nor was the new interest in social mobility only negative, stemming from concerns over inequality. For the generation that had grown up in the post-war decades, social mobility had become a fact of life for many people. Half of all labor market entrants in the 50s and 60s ended up in an occupational class higher than their parents. So unlike wealth and income inequality, social mobility is something that affected very large uh, swathes of people very directly. And these um, uh, beneficiaries of the golden age of social mobility now expected the same for their children, even though statistically this necessarily becomes harder over time if you're measuring social mobility by occupation, as more people start higher up the occupational ladder already, and there's less room at the top. Now, there was no a priori reason why policies aimed at improving social mobility should focus on higher education. All the evidence suggests that prior attainment in school is the most important determinant of attainment in higher education. John Major, who had himself left school at 16, had relatively little interest in higher education. Nor is it the case that new labor harped particularly on higher education. Its policies aimed at improving life chances at all stages of the life cycle from sure start for the early years to the educational maintenance allowance for 16 to 18 year olds and on to the labor market, where, for example, a campaign against unpaid internships recognized that inequality continued to burgeon after and outside education. So their policies were aimed, I think, pretty even-handedly across all stages of the life cycle. But widening participation in higher education was undoubtedly a part of this package from Deering onwards, including the pledge to raise participation rates to 50% in 2001, a white paper on widening participation in 2003, and a 2008 report from the Auditor General which reported with satisfaction that the participation gap was finally just beginning to shrink a little as overall participation rates edged above 40%. It's probably fair to say that over time, widening participation raised its profile within this portfolio of policies aimed at improving social mobility. The cynical explanation, which I'm sure is one frequently voiced by people in this room, is that universities have proved useful scapegoats for politicians who either couldn't or wouldn't tackle inequality themselves with tax and redistributive policies. And of course, there's some truth to that. But I think there's more to it, too. Some economists have argued that higher education is becoming more crucial to social mobility over time. How much people are aware of that is an interesting question. There's also, again, um, a, um, a crucial uh, change in the public's expectations. Just as universal secondary education in the 50s raised expectations that everyone, regardless of class, deserved the best schools, so the breakthrough to mass higher education achieved by Baker raised expectations that higher education, too, should be part of every citizen's birthright. The sociologists talk of role model effects in which teenagers from disadvantaged backgrounds see more people like themselves at university and then aspire to join them. And these effects have now reached very far indeed. The Millennium Cohort Survey found in 2008 that among mothers of seven-year-olds, 96% of mothers with the lowest educational qualifications themselves, that is, mothers with no educational qualifications whatsoever, expected their children to go to university, 96%. It would be a foolish politician who ignored this level of democratic expectation, as foolish politicians did in the 1950s. And widening participation, this suggests, is here to stay, and here to stay in the more radical version, more equal participation, and not just expansion on its own. It's those low participation mothers with expectations for their um, children um, who are the, um, the, the, in some ways, the most exigent 
um, uh, uh, citizens. Let me conclude with two observations about what this short history of widening participation might tell us about the state we're in today. First, there has long been a tendency among universities to consider that the job of widening participation is not theirs, but just the schools. Elite universities have always relied on schools to do their academic and social selection for them. Non-elite universities have been more enterprising, but even they have tended to rely on citizen demand for the democratization of schooling, which might then automatically drive up higher education participation rates. The access efforts that polytechnics made during the stagnant period of the 70s and 80s soon gave way to a bonanza in the 90s motored not by access, but by the advent of GCSE, rising staying on rates, and rising A-level grades. Soon the old universities began to benefit too from this conveyor belt as more and more candidates moved into their A-level offer catchment. And this made recruitment seem semi-automatic for many universities, not just at the bottom of the heap, but those in the middle as well. Sir John Kingman has suggested to me that elite universities like Bristol, where he was vice chancellor between 1985 and 2001, during the period of rapid expansion, did have to take widening participation more seriously for another reason. They're obviously not needing to pull students necessarily straight off the bottom. But with the ab abolition of most grammar schools, they had lost the feeder schools on which they relied for academically and socially selected students. Thus, simply to find and recruit the existing pool of privileged students, they needed to cast their nets more widely to a much larger number of schools to which academically talented students had been dispersed. As the effects of GCSE and rising A-level grades kicked in, the number of possible schools widened further. And there's obviously some truth to this. This is where I'm going to return to this graph. Um, the fact that this didn't seem to register until the late 1980s, by which time most grammar schools had been long gone, suggests that, in fact, elite universities were still relying at that late date on feeder schools, independence, and the remaining grammars. And that the further up the system you are, the more you can, and the longer you can rely on those feeder schools. Um, this is just the chronology of comprehensivization and the shrinking of the number of a shrinking of number of grammar schools, and as you'll see, um, read at the grammar schools, the number of grammar schools had already shrunk pretty rapidly um, by the late 70s. You know the famous line about Margaret Thatcher abolished more grammar schools than any other uh, education minister, which is true. Um, that was in the early 70s, and by the early 80s, um, grammar schools were down pretty much already at the levels that they are today. So if some crise de conscience hit in the late 80s is not because the grammar schools had suddenly disappeared. Um, one telling indicator is that the relatively late abolition of the direct grant schools, they were um, slated for abolition in 75, it took uh, many years for them, for them to be reorganized, came as a particularly grievous shock to elite universities as they had relied on these schools, in reality part fee paying, and very elite in their recruitment, to boost their proportion of maintained students. There's a, a lot of interesting um, playing around with where you put the direct grants into the, into the statistics. Um, are they maintained schools? Well, half of their students are, are, are sometimes fee payers. Um, as late as 2008, my own university was using this graph. I feel slightly guilty about showing it to you because when I complained about it, they took it off immediately. Um, uh, my university was using this graph to show that their maintained intake had been severely disrupted by comprehensivization, as they said, when in fact all that had happened, and I show this to students, and I, I say, well, what do you think has happened here? And they say, oh, it's comprehensivization. I say, well, that took place then, and anyway, it didn't all take place in one year. <laughs> um, 
So what's happening here? Well, of course, all that's happened is that one mostly privileged and partly fee-paying body of students has been transferred from the maintained to the independent column. And even so, they couldn't bring themselves to change this classification of the direct grants until 1982. That said, the same graphic shows that improvements in the share of the maintained sector do begin year on year um, from around uh, 2000, the year as it happens of the Laura Spence affair. That's precisely when government pressure on all universities to measure and address widened participation began to heat up. And these pressures, combined with curricular reform and school improvements, did finally induce elite universities to begin to search a much wider range of schools for applicants, spawning a host of initiatives, including this annual lecture, and much harder thinking about who could benefit from elite universities and where they could be found. But this seriousness about widening participation came very late, and it has not yet spread to every corner of every elite university. The second and uh, related point, and my last point, is that even when universities have increased interest in themselves in widening participation, they have tended to rely on expansion itself to do the work for them, rather than truly seeking more equal participation. This has made them vulnerable to effectively maintain inequality, for expansion until saturation is reached tends to benefit the already privileged most. Universities are not alone in this. Governments make the same mistake. They focus on widening participation at the bottom and fail to notice widening participation at the top. So a recent claim that the numbers of students from the poorest areas entering elite universities has increased by 40%, a true claim, ignores the fact that this increase has only lifted them from 2.3 to 3.2%, that's 40% increase, and that the gap between them and the students from the richest areas, whose participation is also increasing, has remained stable or even widened. No one wants to argue against widening participation in higher education, even for the rich. But no one should call or want to call that widening participation in the truest sense. And for too long, universities have done just that. Today, we're equipped with a host of better measures of widening participation. We can track low participation postcodes with tools like Polar. Thanks to the student loan company, we have more data on our students' family income. We have measures that differentiate school from undergraduate attainment in ways that should allow us not to over-rely on misleading measures of prior attainment, which only entrench inequality. But again, these are all recent developments, and they have hardly penetrated very far into the consciousness of most academics, and not even, dare I say it, all admissions tutors. The systematic steps to identify and to cultivate sources of demand for high-quality higher education, wherever they may be found and wherever they may be developed, which Gene Flood urged upon Robbins more than 50 years ago, are only now beginning to be taken. That's a sobering thought, but it should be an encouraging one, too. I mustn't end on that positive note. It would damage my street credibility as a historian. So my last suggestion is this. Even the best efforts may be ineffective against effectively maintaining inequality. Privileged families have many ways to secure their children's privilege besides higher education that we have no control over, and they're getting better at it. A third of children from the highest occupational backgrounds with the lowest educational qualifications will still end up in the highest occupations, and we have no control over those. Those are people who left school at 16. Finally, now that privileged uh, families' participation in undergraduate education has reached saturation point, we might expect effectively maintained inequality to be achieved by unequal access to postgraduate education. If you don't choose a vice chancellor to give next year's unit access lecture, perhaps you should invite Paul Wakeling, the York University sociologist who has most closely studied access to postgraduate education. And with that final bright idea for next year's lecture, this year's lecture has reached its close. Thank you.